Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Christmas time is here. Children, I should have put the lyrics up. Oh, children, Cole, how do you not know the fucking words? I just know it as just time of year. Are you ready to get peanuts up in this place? Aw, yeah. The true meaning of Christmas. Does Charles Schultz know it? He definitely had a mistress. We'll talk about all of those things on this episode today. Oh, my God. And was that mistress young? Yes, she was. But not illegally young, so don't worry. We won't be crushing all of your dreams today. No. Just a couple. But most of this is actually very, very positive. Yeah, we're talking a little bit about the the history of peanuts up until Charlie Brown. He's a clown. Christmas. I feel like we never do introductions, so I'm Holden, joined by Jackie and Natalie, Whoa. and today we are talking about my favorite Christmas thing ever. Whatever, they're here, but they're whatever. We're talking about my favorite Christmas thing. <laughs> this is Holden's thing epi. This, yes, yes this is my special episode. He's a bit of a okay? CB himself, you know? Mm. And that's why I'm, I'm going to force Natalie to be in attendance while I talk about Christianity in a slightly positive light. Yeah, and I apologize ahead of time. It's very off-brand for the network. But it is a part of this episode because I do do truly love that climactic scene of this film. Uh, a film, by film I mean special. Uh, it's like, we and, and spoiler alert, Muppets Christmas around the corner. It's like Jackie has Muppets Christmas. I have Charlie Brown Christmas. This is like I watch it with my brother every single year. I might even Zoom watch it with him this year just to make, just to force it upon us. Are we going to get one of mine? I, I, yeah, what, what is about Christmas Vacation? Christmas Vacation, Christmas we got to do that. Scrooge, which That's all time I watch yeah. with my dad every year. Definitely, we got to do that. We will. Um, a, a bad Santa too. I would totally do. But yeah, oh, yeah, Santa. Natalie, definitely National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. We should also do. These are you guys are in my wheelhouse right now. By the way, those are probably my th- top three yeah. favorite. Cool. We did we did Scrooge last year. That would that's also in the short list. But um, this one, I think for me, if you want to say Holden, what is what exemplifies the 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 feeling of Christmas distilled to its absolute utter emotion. That, that exemplifies this childlike wonder mixed with this weird adult nostalgia feeling mixed with this bizarre kind of subtle sadness in a way. There's something about it. Maybe it's just the, the those those moments of reflection, the fact that the year is almost up, and that is also a part of what 
the the Christmas all about how how uh, cynical it's all become and and how grossly uh, gross the consumerism yeah. commercialization of it all. That's my favorite part. I mean, <laughs> I do love to buy, 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 but I found and I don't mean in sync, guys. Hi. I found this <laughs> paragraph. <laughs> That talks about a little bit of why Peanuts specifically is able to create this reaction with Charlie Brown Christmas. And I just thought that it was so beautiful because as someone that we grew up with the original collections of Charlie Brown in the house, my mom was a big Charlie Brown fan growing up. Mm. So we had a lot of the old school books of like when they were drawn in a very different way than they are in the special. Cool. But I love this sentiment. So in the 1950s, Peanuts struck a chord with people feeling guilty over their vague discontent amid historic post-war prosperity. In the 1960s, it expressed the struggle of young people reaching for freedoms and pondering the meaning of existence, like Snoopy wondering why he was put on Earth. He says, I haven't the slightest idea. More than anything, Peanuts upended the belief that childhood is a time of innocence and happiness, for a child's pain is more acute than adults. Charlie Brown reminded people of what it was like to be vulnerable, to be small and alone in the universe, to be human, both little and big at the same time. And it is, Charlie Brown is... It's sad. It is a sad yeah. cartoon. The the original, the strips are sad. He never wins, and it is about learning life's hard lessons young, and in a time when we're bouncing around and being like, "Yeah, but that's, that's okay." I learned it. I learned it. I learned it. And then you look at kids and you think, "Oh, your emotions don't count as much. Oh, they're just over dramatic." But they're learning all of this for the first time. Do you know how hard that is? Of course they're maniacs. And also experiencing a lot of a horrible... Uh, kids always experience something they're not supposed to, and they have to process those feelings. I think Charlie Brown, actually, going back and looking at this, was really the first experiment into like looking at mental health for kids. And that's really important. And, and the, yet like, also shitting on it at the same time with the psychiatric help five cents yes, of Jesus, yeah. like with yes. Lucy just being like... Figure it out. It's very <laughs> poignant commentary when you get down to it. I never yeah. really paid that much attention to Peanuts, and now I'm very nostalgic for them. I'm like, oh man, I miss the comic strips. I want to go look at Sunday comics. Yeah, it, it's really good. It speaks to the power of what a like a simple Sunday strip can can have for people, especially because it's you know it's on your TV screen. Uh, over the holidays, it's in your weekly paper, and there's there's surprising meaning. And I think when you're just like reading the news, and then you're like, oh, hitting the crosswords and these dumb one-liner jokes. If you have a Charles Schultz, a Bill Waterson in the mix, and all of a sudden you're like, am I tearing up over this fucking four-panel yeah. message? But because uh, this person puts so much heart and so much love into their work. And you feel that in this special and, and what Schultz wanted to say with this special. This special that came out of nowhere that at the end of the day was much like Charlie Brown's tree itself. This little special that that couldn't until it finally did and won over the whole country. I mean, uh, you know, and became this absolute mainstay. But it had so much doubt behind it. Um, it, it, it came out of a failure. It's such a Charlie Brown story. It came out it of is. a failed documentary. <laughs> it it. It was a rush job. They they watched a rough cut of it and thought they they had ruined the peanuts forever. It was uh, you know this whole bizarre 
situation and then and then just explodes onto the scene because it's doing something in a Christmas special that no other uh, uh, Christmas special had done before it, and thus cementing it as this regular thing. And I mean, something for me that it came out in 1965, I believe, right? And, um, you know, t- three decades later, I'm obsessed with it as a, as a boy myself and now as an adult, something that speaks to both parts of me in that way. And, you know, you can laugh your ass off at Snoopy and, and just enjoy it on this one level and then watch it 10 years later and be like, oh my God, this is nailing this again, just melancholic Christmas feeling that I have every year that I think everybody has a little bit of every year because there's just something sad about going home in a way. There's something sad about growing up. There's something sad about the way that we consume. Especially this year's holidays. This year's holidays are really putting a lot, I don't mean to speak for you guys, but it's putting a lot in perspective for me of what we value, of what our lives are. And I'm being extra introspective this year, which (laughs) I don't know if I need, but maybe we do. Maybe we do need to take a little bit closer look at how we live our lives, of how we treat each other, and, you know, why not kick it off with Charlie Brown Christmas, which also started, it changed the face of primetime specials, because it was the first one. It was the one that, it opened the door for How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It opened the door for Frosty the Snowman. These other specials that now you also watch every year, because They didn't think that they could make a 20-minute special mean anything, and they did. It's 20 minutes. For something that has shaped so much of how I feel in the holidays, it's 20 fucking minutes long. (laughs) Which is, that's crazy. It even opened the door for whatever to get a Christmas special. I'm sorry, did I say whatever? I meant Garfield. How do you, oh, you will never disparage the Garfield. See, the reason why we're doing this special, I just need you guys to know the inside baseball, is because I wanted to do the Garfield holiday specials, but Wizbrew already did Garfield. We'll do Garfield. We can do Garfield. We can do uh, No, I guess we can't. I guess we can't. I I guess we shouldn't, or actually, maybe we shouldn't. But either way, whatever. (laughs) Also, I guess this might be a good point to mention that it turns out that um, Apple has purchased... Charlie Brown Christmas, which is very funny because it's all about how commercialism is ruining Christmas, but it has put it behind a paywall. Um, So you can't watch it unless you watch it in a very annoying way, which is I found it on YouTube in 15 parts. So that is, yes, a 20 minute special in 15 parts on YouTube. It'll also be available via PBS. I think they're going to broadcast. I hope it's going to be on the app as well. I have that on my Roku. And yes, on December 11th through 13th, but starting December 4th, you can get it on Apple Plus. At least you can stream it for free. Ugh, so it's I don't not give them an ad. No, we <laughs> don't. But it will be free, so it won't be behind a paywall starting December 4th. So by the time you listen to this, you can watch it. Just you, you have go. to watch it on Apple, unfortunately. All right, let's get into it. Um, the Peanuts Christmas special. It all starts with the man, the myth, the legend, Charles M. Schultz, who created a daily American comic strip called The Peanuts, written and illustrated uh, by the man himself. It ran from 1950 to the year 2000. Isn't that crazy? Every single one he did himself. And spoiler alert, the Peanuts, the last strip to air, not air, to be printed 
happened the Sunday after he died. And isn't mm. that nuts? It's nuts. 17,897 strips published in all. It ran in over 2,600 newspapers with a readership of around 35, 355 rather million in 75 countries translated to 21 languages, centering around a social circle of young children and its main characters, Charlie Brown, a kid who is generally bad at life. The uh, series also, of course, ends up with these specials, um, A Charlie Brown Christmas. The year after that, it's uh, uh, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I love uh, it. It's another one I would love to cover at some point. I love it. Absolutely fantastic. That's another one, too, which it is the the idea that Linus waits in that damn pumpkin patch all night long, and he never shows up. You know what's even a better Halloween special is the Garfield one. The Garfield Halloween (laughs) special, yes. I guess guess we can't talk about that. I can't remember a single thing that happens in it is Are the only difference God, between those candy, two specials. Candy, candy. Yeah, just literally, the one is incredibly memorable. I remember these days the pumpkin patch all night. Wow. And then the other one is like, what even happened in it? I guess the Garfield Halloween is actually scary. Yeah, it is. It's actually <laughs> fucking scary. When we, we, like both Henry and I had visceral reactions growing, as we watched it as adults because we were both like upset by the part still that scared us was when we were kids. And yes. the Garfield yeah. special. So yeah, I guess I guess you should know that already since you covered it. But whatever. Well, I guess it's a special. But either way, <laughs> Charles M. Schultz. Uh, let's talk about him. Raised in Saint Paul, Minnesota, Schultz loved drawing at an early age and enjoyed drawing his family dog Spike. Since the dog liked to eat odd things like pins and tacks, oh. a picture of Schultz drew. A picture Schultz drew got into Ripley's Believe It or Not, credited as drawn by Sparky. His uncle called him Sparky. Yeah, starting with a lie. Starting with a lie, Izzy. But he's got mommy problems. (laughs) I I wrote mommy problems a lot. And I kept singing, mommy problems. Charles got them. He's gonna draw Charlie Brown. (laughs) I sang it a lot uh, to myself. What are the mommy problems? Well, his mom died died tragically and he still refers to it well not anymore but he did refer to it as his greatest tragedy in fact he even says when he is asked to recount his biographical timeline he doesn't begin with his birth but he begins with the day his mother died he said that the tragedy compounded by the deep dissatisfaction that even though he far surpassed his wildest childhood dreams of success and became the highest paid cartoonist of the world, his mother never lived to see him publish anything. Charlie Brown. He never got to, that's why the, the adults never talk in any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, either <laughs> way. Since he also another Charlie Brown element to Schultz, he skipped two half grades in elementary school and ended up the youngest in his class at high school, which turned him into a very shy, timid teenager, very Charlie Brownish. And one memorable moment from his high school was when his drawings were rejected by his high school yearbook. I feel like every time I do a story about a young animator, cartoonist, what have you, they always first get their stuff published in the high school newspaper, yearbook, what have you. Of course, his stuff got rejected. Turn what a Charlie Brown! Down. What <laughs> a Charlie! Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, th- th- his mother's death also... Um, 
Uh, he is, uh, after high school, drafted into the Army to serve as a staff sergeant with the 20th Armored Division in Europe during World War II. He led a machine gun team, and they only saw combat at the very end of the war, and he said he only had one opportunity to fire his machine gun, but forgot to load it, and the German oh soldier God. he would have fired at willingly surrendered. What a Charlie Brown! What a Charlie Brown! But it is interesting, Ugh. though, because that is why they bring in the Snoopy other side of his fantasy life to incorporate what essentially the trauma that the army did on Charles Schultz. He also has this line that is, again, another Charlie Brown line. The army taught me all I needed to know about loneliness. <laughs> and <laughs> real rough. And But it does, he it does openly say again and again how Snoopy becomes eventually the embodiment of of Schultz's life course. So when Snoopy glosses over Lucy's insults, it was Schultz accepting his contentious divorce. When Snoopy pursues the Red Baron and afterwards quaffs a root beer with Bill Malden, this was Schultz memorializing his World War II experience and his wartime editorial cartoonist hero. Which uh, which peanut represented his erectile dysfunction? <laughs> I don't know if he had it because uh, he certainly seemed like he kept his mistress pretty happy for all those years. There you go. I'm slamming away at that mistress. I was going to say it was the bird. Um, I Woodstock. think the mistress was the piano. Uh, that's oh, the mistress is the piano. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, play those keys for us. <laughs> After the war, he went to Minneapolis and did lettering for a Roman Catholic comic magazine and then took a job at Art Instruction, Inc., where he reviewed and graduated students' work, which is the job he would maintain while he got into the comics biz. Uh, his first regular cartoon was for St. Paul Pioneer Press with one four uh, with four one-panel drawing per issue referred to as Lil Folks, which I was a prototype of sorts for name Peanuts. Lil Folks. And I think he hates the name Peanuts, I which we'll get into because it's such a Charlie Brown thing. Peanuts. He hates <laughs> the name Peanuts. He wanted to be Lil Folks. But Peanuts came about because that is the name, the Peanut Gallery from the Howdy Doody show is where the kids yes. used to sit. So they yes. they called it Peanuts, and I do. he just wanted to call it good old Charlie Brown. And they wouldn't let him. He just wanted to be good old Charlie Brown. Yeah, it, it, little folks included a well-dressed boy with a fondness for Beethoven, uh, a dog similar to Snoopy, and even a boy named Charlie Brown. So, of course, that, and that ends up being the focus, and that's what he wants. Uh, the character's name was actually first used on May 30th, 1948, in a strip in which you don't actually see him because another boy buried him in a sandbox and then denies <laughs> that he's seen him when asked. Uh, the first time you see him is actually in the first Peanuts strip on, in October 2nd, 1950, with two other children talking about good old Charlie Brown as he passes by them, after which one of the kids says, how I hate him. Brown so is, sad. of course, <laughs> modeled after Schultz, who maintained his shy, withdrawn nature through his life. Um, and also, they both uh, have uh, barber fathers and housewife mothers. Also, many of his friends share the same name. Schultz was friends with a Linus and a Shermie growing up. Then there's Charlie Brown's unrequited love for a little red-haired girl who was inspired by his real love of Donna Mae Johnson, who was an Art Instruction Inc. accountant that he proposed to in 1950. She turned him down and married another man it's shortly so after what funny. Charlie Brown. Oh my Donna, God. I wrote Donna Mae Bitchson more like. So apparently <laughs> this, this woman, who was based on the little red-haired girl, so she was she was dating Charles Schultz at the time, and 
he was dating her. And after he got the news from her one day on her stoop that she chose another man, Schultz returned a few hours later to ask if she'd changed her mind. That wasn't the end of it. Schultz was determined <laughs> never to put the rejection to rest. Schultz told friends <laughs> that Johnson rejected him because her mother disliked him. But in fact, the decision was Johnson's alone. She wanted only a plain, decent Lutheran life as a housewife, something marriage to a rising cartoonist did not exactly promise. And she married a machinist who had no higher ambition than to take a firefighter exam, as if that's a, a horrible job, which this is, I don't like the way that this is written. But for the rest of his life, the, so this, I have to also, we have to point out, there is this very detailed biography written about Charles Schultz by this yes. dude named David Michaelis. It, it is it's, it's called Schulz and Peanuts, a biography. He worked with him for seven years. Now, the thing is, is he painted, so we'll call it, keep calling him Sparky. Everyone calls Charles Schulz Sparky. He, so he, he painted Sparky as if like, oh, everyone thinks he's this Charlie Brown kind of guy. When in reality, he's an asshole. Nobody liked him. Everybody hated Sparky and he was bad to everybody. And he stood but like he was way too stubborn. And he goes into detail about the mistress that he had who was 25 years old, who he would send her. Like there's all these love letters between them where he would include the, like a whole plot line that he eventually brought into Peanuts talking about how uh, Snoopy was having an affair with a girl beagle who has the softest paws. <laughs> and in two letters from 1970, Schulz writes that he must cease calling her because his long distance phone calls to her had been discovered by his wife. Soon after, he created a strip in which Charlie Brown berated Snoopy for his obnoxious behavior when he's not allowed to go see that girl, Beagle. And in other panels, Charlie warns Snoopy, you'd better start behaving yourself. And when Snoopy picks up the telephone, Charlie Brown yells, and stop making those long-distance phone calls. So he just brought it into Peanuts. <laughs> but the thing is, is that his family is very against the book and what was written about him. They were like, we loved our father. I don't, they didn't believe a lot of the perspective that he wrote this biography about. But it's hard to not, like, especially he stands by what he wants. And you will see in Charlie Brown Christmas that he definitely is not going to back down from what he uh, wants. Okay, but I have, to, I have to add here, this is, a lot of these stories are being told from the lens of a bygone era because if you go back to the uh red-haired unrequited love it simply sounded like he wasn't taking no for an answer from a woman who was not interested in him and then made it into like a romantic or like story. A, it's nice guy right it's nice guy thing because i and had that the lady's like please leave me alone and he's like never you're right i love her and then instead of moving on he then makes her a character so she can never rest and never not think about charles schultz he'll always be in the back of her mind well he never got over her apparently one of his favorite activities later in life was to place a red-haired wig on his knee and slap his own thigh <laughs> that is a lie none of that happens but i think that is a funny image when you think about it oh, uh, either won't way won't you love me why won't you love me <laughs> my thigh baby love me thigh baby so going back to the name thing uh, I, w I do want to explain too that um he initially submits his little folks cartoons to united features syndicate for SoundCloud rapper, huh? Right? Yeah. Little folks. 
in order to get into more newspapers than just the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And he did this by presenting a package of comic strips as opposed to the one-block panels that they... Uh, and they took him up on it. There was, however, another strip already called Little Folks, and his creator chimed in against them using the name, and that's why they had to change the name. And it was essentially done by someone over at United Features Syndicate, uh, kind of without his say. And apparently, he hates the name so much that when asked what he did for a living, he would respond, I draw that comic strip with Snoopy in it, Charlie Brown, and his dog. And he later tried to change the strip's name to Charlie Brown, but he never could just because the licensing was so complicated. Complicated. And he he was almost at Garfield levels of life licensing with peanuts. Like oh, yeah. he was very not not the same as Bill Watterson with Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, he plenty of Snoopy merch to be found all over the place. So that can get really tricky with the name change. Probably lose a lot of money over that. Uh, but either way, uh, Peanuts launches. It starts running at, in October of 1950 in seven newspapers, including the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Snoopy appeared in the third strip ever, while the other mainstay characters didn't make their first appearance until at least 1951, at first with Violet and Schrodinger. Schroeder, Schrodinger's cat is what I can think of. Um, <laughs> Lucy and Linus first appeared in 1952, Pigpin in 1954, Sally in 1959, Peppermint Patty, who was based on his own cousin named Patricia Swanson, first appeared in 1966, Franklin in, in 1968, and Woodstock doesn't get into the mix until 1967. He did everything himself, like we said, and uh, from the script to the finished art and lettering, which lent itself to a unified tone with a minimalistic style. And again, I think that's why we can all love this and uh, Calvin and Hobbes far greater than we could love Garfield, who is essentially like you son the of a bitch. You are of mean. comics. You it's are like mean, he's sort of, and you he's take great. Garfield away from our show, and you disparage Garfield. <laughs> How dare you? Not in front You're of us. You're wearing a Garfield <laughs> orange sweatshirt. You look like Garfield right now. I am. I do kind of look like Garfield right now. Hi guys. You do look like Garfield. Go eat lasagna. But also, Linus was Sparky's favorite to draw, and That's isn't fun. that kind of fun? Little fun tidbit for you. I like that. That's fun. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, in the 60s is when Peanuts really hit their golden age. Uh, the strip really kicks it up a notch, especially with its social commentary. Always an understated situation. The strip includes girls on the baseball team and the addition of Franklin in a racial, racially integrated school and neighborhood, which was actually a huge deal at the time. You forget. You're like, wow, yeah, that was like the 60s. That was still a thing. I'd like uh, to talk Fra about that real quick. Yeah, 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 let's talk about Franklin. I think you did a little more digging on Franklin than I did, and I really think this is a big part of uh, the evolution of Peanuts. Well, it also really explains this is when I go back and forth with what 
the dude who wrote the biography about Charles Schultz said about him. And then, but it's also like, but this is a man that sticks to his laurels for good and not just for evil. Or his penis. That, <laughs> or his penis is that, so Franklin was born in the awake of Martin Luther King's assassination. So Harriet Glickman, who was a teacher in Los Angeles, she said, I was a retired teacher at the time. And she said, Dr. King had just been gunned down in Memphis. And I was thinking about him and about having lived through so many years of struggles and the racism and the divisiveness that existed. Her parents had raised her in the Depression era with a strong social conscience. Now, this was a culmination that was so painful that I needed to do something. So I decided to write. And my feeling at the time was that I realized that black kids and white kids never saw themselves depicted together in the classroom. So she wrote to so many different cartoonists with the idea of cartoon integration. Now, Charles Schultz loved her point. He loved the idea. But he also shared that he had a lot of reservations about it because that he, as a white creator, didn't know if he should be writing a black character without he was worried about unintended condescension. So she suggested that she could seek input from her other black friends and black teachers who were also parents to write to him. And and she said, with his permission, I shared this letter and got as many people as she could to write in of what they would like to see represented for their culture in the cartoon. So he decides to do it. He includes, he brings in Franklin on July 31st, 1968. And apparently Sparky faced a question from the head of United Feature Syndicate. And they said, are you sure you want to do this? If you And if you know Sparky, you know what his response was, because apparently so like hundreds of newspapers were going to pull the cartoon because he wanted to integrate the, the characters. Ugh. And he Ugh. said, he said, you either run it the way I drew it or I quit. And this was at the height of Peanuts. And most of the papers wow. left it in the way that it was. Yeah. And if they didn't, wow. they don't like he shouldn't want to be in their busted ass paper anyway. Yeah, yeah. Here with your stinky paper. True. <laughs> True that. So let's get into the special itself. I think that's a good lead up back background on Peanuts. Uh, the hated, I love that he hates that. I love knowing that now that he yes. hates the name Peanuts. Uh, so yes, it all starts with a failure, as we mentioned before. This is a failed documentary on Schultz himself, done by a TV producer named Lee Mendelson. He approached Schultz, who agreed to the project because Charles Schultz, Sparky, I love that you're casually calling him Sparky, like you're like Everything besties with said him. Sparky, he was like, old, like mostly known as Sparky. But that's also that's also Chevy Chase's nickname for Clark Griswold's nickname. And that's Sparky. right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, his uncle uh, called him Sparky. That's how he got it, uh, the name. And it was named after a horse in a comic strip called Barney uh, Google that the boy wow. liked. Oh, Barney Google's horse. Oh, Barney Google. Yeah, Schultz loved it as a boy, so he that's how the nickname came about. But so either just way, real quick, to paint the picture of where Peanuts is this time. So they're working on a documentary called A Boy Named Charlie Brown. And at this point in time, his characters had recently appeared on the cover of Time magazine. So this is starting to gain all of this. So that's why he was like, he never really wanted them to be animated. He never he never designed them to be animated. That was never really the point. I think that he just wanted them to be a cartoon. But since they were on the cover of Time, this is when it started to spark the advertisers to be like, oh, my God. 
Should we be trying to make money off of this? And they did do a Ford commercial, which hilariously yes. enough because of how anti-corporate. The, yes. But they did a Ford commercial initially. That's how they first worked together. So all this is like the combination of some past jobs for a commercial and this documentary that didn't go through. By the way, I do love that um, the reason why Schultz agreed to do the documentary was because Mendelssohn had just done a documentary on baseball playing great Willie Mays and uh, he was a big baseball fan and he also, uh, and Mendelssohn liked the idea of first covering one of the greatest baseball players of all time and now doing a documentary about one of the worst baseball players of all time, Charlie Brown. The Peanuts? The Peanuts did a Ford? Yes. They were in a Ford commercial. I believe Mendelssohn worked with Schultz and even the animator, which we'll get into in a little bit. Why would the Peanuts do a car commercial? I don't know. Money, money. I mean, he licensed this shit out. They're all like children. They can't even drive. Yeah, they get hit by the car. Um, They all die. Yeah, yeah. You're a dead man, Charlie Brown, is the name of the commercial. But either way. Our truck can kill up to upwards of eight kids at once. (laughs) That's a lot of horsepower. Uh, Mendelssohn brought in a guy named Bill Melendez to do a little animation for that documentary. And uh, Schultz had actually uh, also uh, appreciated his animation. He d- Middleton did some animation also for that Willie Mays documentary. So anyways, the three of these just sort of c- have this very natural partnership forming. And uh, the they couldn't get a buyer to take the documentary, of course, because... That's just so Charlie Brown. No one would take the documentary on Charles Schultz. But it was that Time Magazine cover that ended up getting Middleson hit up with a phone call from uh, an ad agency called McCann Erickson, who was working with the Coca-Cola company, and they they wanted to get a holiday special in the books, something for no, you know, to to get some notoriety and whatnot. Uh, And so I love it too that he immediately so he gets this phone call from McCann Erickson. They're like, no, 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 we want a Christmas special. And so what does Mendelssohn say? Yeah, great. <laughs> we'll to- we've got that. We've got a Christmas special. We'll get we're it to you really quick. Like that even. They yeah, even yeah. asked him, like, how much money would you need for an animated short? Mendelssohn had absolutely no idea because he they weren't actually working on an animated short at the time. So he called up Bill Hanna of Hanna-Barbera oh, at this shit. point in time for advice of how much money he should ask for or how she, he should go about it. Hanna Bar- or Bill Hanna gave him nothing. He refused to give him any of his trade secrets. Oh, whatever. Refused to help him whatsoever. Whatever sucks, bro. So then, so Mendelssohn was just like, uh, so he's like, I guess we'll essentially just like take what you give us, which is $76,000, which if you know, especially animation, even at that time, Actually, especially at that time, was not enough money. They do end up going over budget by about $20,000. But yeah, still a very tight budget and a very tight turnaround. So Mendelssohn calls up Schultz. He's literally just like, I think I just sold a a Peanuts Christmas special or Charlie Brown Christmas special. And Schultz just long pause was like, all right. Come on up. Let's work on it. And um, uh, Middleson also said, the bad news is is that today is Wednesday, and they'll need an outline in Atlanta by Monday. And we're talking Western Union, by the way, is how they're going to get, you know what I mean? There's like, there's no fax machines, I think, even at this point. I know. How are they even delivered? By horse? Yeah, (laughs) by a fucking deer on roller skates or something. Either way, the two get together, and they get an outline done in less than a day. And Schultz's ideas, quote, flowed nonstop, according to Mendelssohn. Schultz wanted to focus on the childhood stress of putting on a Christmas play, which I think we all, it's so great because I think we're all theater 
people, background people a little bit, or performance people. But the beauty of the Christmas play is that all those non-performers have to awkwardly be on stage as a sheep or as a... Love it. I know. love it. Pig pen as the shepherd. And it's just, I love it. It's just like, ah, but put them all in it, which is yeah. how it goes with kids. I think recently yeah. I saw a meme where like, it was a kid that was playing the doorknob in some school play, <laughs> which I think is absolutely adorable. Um, Our version of that it. is in the Nutcracker that you know you as a dancer know the parts that the kids get that aren't very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the snowflakes, yeah. I won't reveal which ones, but I know. <laughs> I just love this too, this line. To create such an unabashedly anti-consumerist story with the backing of both Coca-Cola and CBS was a suddenly <laughs> radical accomplishment in 1965. As radical as it would be to do it today. It's crazy that they got away with this. <laughs> and talk Talking about the uh, anti-consumerism stuff, I think that's best represented with that Christmas tree. Mendelssohn had just read The Fir Tree by Hans Christian Andersen, which is about a tree so anxious to grow up for greater things that he cannot appreciate living in the moment. Mendelssohn wanted to include a tree that is as sad and misunderstood as Charlie Brown. And uh, Schultz really liked that and ran with it. The, the pitch to Coca-Cola included, quote, winter scenes, a school play, a scene to be read from the Bible, and a soundtrack combining jazz and traditional music. More on the Bible passage later, but either way, the pitch was approved with a six-month turnaround six for the special. Not a lot animation. of time. That is not a lot of time. So no. I, I also looked into a little bit more because I wanted to see how was Coca-Cola represented in this? Because, again... They're backing this. I was like, why doesn't, why isn't there anything Coca-Cola in it? Especially in a time period when usually the promoters, I mean, I say a time period, they still do this. If you put a bunch of money into something, they better be drinking fucking Coca-Cola in that special. Right, right, But totally. usually it's more obvious. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but it was more obvious, but it has since been taken out. So in the original version of the special, there's a famous scene early on, you know, when all the kids are ice skating on the frozen pond and Linus and Charlie Brown join the group. But Snoopy grabs a hold of Linus's blanket, entangling both Charlie Brown and Linus to spin them off of the ice, right? Charlie Brown hits a tree, then gets covered by snow, and this is Charlie Brown Christmas. But where does Linus go? In the original version, he hits a sign advertising Coca-Cola. And that ah. has been taken out. And there's also another time when they're throwing snowballs and you never see what they're throwing snowballs at. And apparently in the original version, they were throwing snowballs at cans of Coke. But since the advertisement didn't continue past this year, it was taken out after the first showing and never shown again in subsequent ones because Coca-Cola was not making any more money or giving any more money towards it. Oh, interesting, because they do have the scene of them throwing snowballs still, but I guess maybe there's yeah. no Coca-Cola on the they can. They took the cans out. Yeah, or That's they so took the funny, Coca too, that it's hitting a sign. They're hitting the cans with snowballs like they're abusing they're still the against logo, it. the yeah, name. It's funny. They're still against it, but that I was just like, oh, that makes so much sense. So Schultz wanted to focus on the true meaning of Christmas, as I said, and this includes the reading of a Bible passage, which Mendelssohn and Melendez had actually had big issues with. Religion was a controversial topic for television at the time. Less than 9% of Christmas TV episodes contained any reference to religion. But Schultz responded to this concern with, quote, if we don't do it, 
Who will? He was a very religious man. We didn't really get into that, but but Sparky was, he said, the life of Jesus remained for him a consuming subject. This is a big part of him making this special. He did believe that religion was lost in the idea of Christmas and that it had been lost in the, quote, general good time frivolity. And everyone, and so Mendelssohn was like, okay, all right, yeah, sure, we can include religion in it. And he didn't realize that he wanted the entire speech directly from the New Testament. And Sparky would not back down. And Mendelssohn was like, uh, this is like an entertainment show for <laughs> families. And Sparky refused. He's like, that is the point of what I'm trying to do here. So, you know what? Again, man got his way. Uh, I don't mean to be a Natalie Jean here, but uh, by the oh 80s, he considered himself a secular humanist. So, oh, okay. Whoa. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this happened to me every year, though, honestly. And again, this is me coming up in a Unitarian church, but they did hold a service on Christmas Eve that we would attend. And I remember every single year, it'd be like, I can't wait to get my hands on that Game Boy. I can't wait to get my hands on all that Ninja Turtle shit. And, you know, uh, all I could think about was what I was getting in them's stockings. And every single time we would get to this church and I would be like, I can't wait till this is over so I can get home and try to go to sleep, which never really happened. So I could wake up and get all my fucking loot and we'd sit down and I would be reminded of this story. And as as much as uh, all of all of these things have gotten uh, uh, I feel like badly warped and things like that through certain uh, negative aspects of organized religion. I feel like that basic story of humbleness, of being turned away, of, uh, you know, this this small little scene, meaning all of these things for so many years. And I feel like I would sit there and I would be reminded of this story. And, and then we'd turn all the lights out and light candles and we'd sing um, Silent Night. And, and in that one little moment, every single year, it's like I'd be brought back to what this whole fucking thing is actually about. And I think that that's why I love this passage in this, uh, in this special. And I also, uh, I need to confess, I've got to say that I, I, I am fairly against organized religion, but still growing up, my mom always sang in in the church choir. We we also grew up, you know, Unitarian and, go, and learning about all different things, but she always sang in the church choir and we would always go see her on Midnight Mass to see her sing. And even in my... Even in my angriest times, I would still cry at some point during the ceremony because it's the idea of faith. And I do think that it, as much as I saw this in certain years and I'd be like, oh, they're shoving Christianity down my throat. It's the idea of believing in something. I think that the idea of community and working together and the idea of faith is very beautiful to me. Well, yeah. And that's what this special has. And I think that that is the best part of religion in that also, of course, like my grandmother made me go to service when I was an, a teenager who was just an absolute ghoul person otherwise <laughs> but i always it, like that but that, you've grown up into such a lovely ghoul woman oh, thank you. Oh, oh. uh it's the the that kind of feeling it makes me think about my grandmother and about the purest mm. moments of my very complicated family that 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 quiet sort of candlelit idea of like the sweetness of 
Christmas is to me the best part of that sort of religious thought mindset. And it is one of the, the times that can be the most, in my opinion, positive uh, within that realm. I'm trying to come up with words to not be completely <laughs> insulting. Um, <laughs> that realm of mystics. The realm. Yeah, 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 I like I, it. <laughs> the land of make-believe. I do, I do think that that... that connection to that uh that we connect to like family and community and um getting through the winter because that's essentially what christmas comes from is just like that time period when we're trying to make it through the darkest time of the year together and i think that that's a really lovely sentiment well the story of jesus's birth is kind of i would connect it to uh charlie brown christmas itself and that it's like i watch this special with my brother every year Mm -hmm. and it's a story that we share every single year and we come together on this one story and I think that that is the beautiful thing when it comes to Christmas and all of this sort of thing that everybody comes together and gets together in a room and hopefully a humble room uh, that's you know more respectable to me than some mega church but they get together in a room and they retell this fucking story and and we all we all live in it for one night you know what I mean and hopefully it's not much longer than an hour uh, and we get the hell out of there (laughs) we go (laughs) home and crash and enjoy our loot in the morning but you know we get together and we rehash this story every year to find deeper meanings in it and just to share in it as a community I also love it speaks to to Schultz's brilliance that he actually forced it in because it's the climax of the episode so there was really nothing Mendelssohn or Melendez could do to get rid of it it's kind of a necessary part of the whole thing Um, and and yeah I'd also like to to point out that even though this is biblical stuff brought in here that it is like kind of an innocent enough part of the bible that people who are jewish or who are different religions can also hopefully enjoy it where it doesn't feel like it's necessarily preaching things at you you just perfectly led me into my quote from michael chabon who is i believe jewish and a pulitzer prize winning novelist i love the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay um and he had a really great quote on it I still know that chapter and verse of the Gospel of Luke by heart, and no amount of subsequent disillusionment with the behavior of self-described Christians or with the ongoing progressive commercialization that in 1965 had already broken Charlie Brown's heart has robbed the central miracle of Christianity of its power to move me the way any truly great story can. I think that that is it for me. Yes. Um, So anyways, uh, the three meet at Schultz's home, and completed the barebone script in just a few weeks, which is insane. And by the way, you were like six months for animation to get done. No, no, no. It was like weeks. four months. You're right. It was six animation. months from the, the, I think, the phone call to, of like, hey, we got this special, and to like, we got to write it, to the actual premiere of it, that apparently they finished the last frame of animating 10 days before the special like the was scheduled to broadcast. Car- uh, Christmas specials. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> except it was better than just a slice of cheese between two pieces right. of bread. <laughs> um, so either way, uh, the uh, w- while Schultz wrote the script, Melendez is plotting out the animation with a storyboard, which contains six panels for each shot and was around 80 pages or so. Uh, one debate was over the inclusion of a laugh track, which Mendelssohn wanted, but Schultz was avidly against. Thank you, dude, as he did not want the audience to be informed when to laugh. I Fuck love laugh it. He so wanted the experience. What the, the quote was that he didn't want a laugh track to help move it along. He said, let the people at home enjoy the show at their own speed, in their own way. And now it is said... 
that because at this time period, laugh tracks were in absolutely everything, that it's possibly what helped keep it as a classic every single year is the fact that it does seem a little bit more modern because there's no horrible laugh track included mm-hmm, in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Also, also, can we talk about this casting? Because I didn't think about it until we looked into it, but how... How important is it that it's actual children and that it's, I love this, Mendelssohn, or was it uh, Melendez? It was Melendez, want, yeah, quote, who was the animator, He did yes. not want, quote, Hollywood kids to perform on the special. Instead, he sent tape recorders home with employees to get auditions from their children. I think that natural tone of the whole thing, much like the soundtrack itself, it all just, you know, uh, 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 Mendelssohn talks a lot about serendipity and how serendipity he felt played a major role in this whole thing coming together and his career forever on after that with this partnership between Melendez and Schultz because it just really does feel like the natural perfect combination of music to voice to animation this raw quality to Schultz's script oh yeah so, but in yeah. the casting they hit a snag because they didn't really think about this part is that most of the cast was too young to read the script. So (laughs) what they had to do, what Melendez said in an interview for the book A Charlie Brown Christmas, The Making of a Tradition, that he had to recite the script line by line for the children who couldn't read, including Christopher Shea, who voiced Linus. So that's part of the reason why some of the lines seem like they're not following in in with what is happening. But also that does add to the childlike quality of it because how many times does a little kid run up to you is like, I've got an iguana. And you're like, uh, okay, well, I was, I'm in the middle of cooking eggs. Oh, cool. Where's the iguana? You know, it's like they have, they are always jumping from idea to idea. And I don't think that kid has an iguana. Yeah, it was but like he does. A, and he's a fucking liar. My favorite in John Mulaney's sack lunch bunch when he's doing the, te- the audience test thing with the little kids for the movie. He's like, so how many of you just ran up to a random adult and just immediately started screaming the plot of the movie? And they all like raised their hands. They raised their hands. Oh, sack bundle. He's, oh, John Mulaney's so perfect but that's another story for another day but either way uh casting charlie brown was the most difficult and the role went to eight-year-old peter robbins who had done some tv and film work already but this really made him a star apparently after the special came up kids would run up to him at his school and ask him to quote the lines which i'm sure never got annoying the youngest and i think it was about five years ago he got arrested um for starting some sort of fight in a uh trailer park so i think that things really true yeah i'm just glad you didn't say anything about no. sort of children and pornography. No, which no, no, I no, 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 no. I think it was just fighting. So, oh, all right, good. Man, that's really I, worked I, out. I, for I, 
completely cool with him beating someone up at a trailer park. You know, it just happens <laughs> it sometimes. You would hope that he maybe had a little bit of Charlie Brown money left after. But I guess he got it. He probably had a shitty contract. Yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Some of those kids, by the way, they had already used in that Ford commercial we mentioned, which was a few years before. So they were six or seven around that time, but they were now 10 or 11, but they still kept them over. Uh, also, another big difference in the special that is unlike, and really all the specials and movies that came after that is completely unlike the comic strip, is that uh, Snoopy doesn't speak. Sparky uh, in the, in wouldn't allow it. Yeah, He said Snoopy doesn't <laughs> speak in this world. He was very <laughs> open about this. So Melendez is the one that voices Snoopy. And how does he do it? Because they, they also were very short on funds. So essentially Melendez just um, barked and chuffed into a microphone and then he sped up the recording so that it could give it some more like emotive qualities. And they had to, he had to even fight for that because Sparky was like, he doesn't speak oh. but he's got it what he's got to do something to react the ma- the majority of the cast recording was done in a single day and apparently this was pretty chaotic the kids were a like day? running around and being crazy <laughs> yes. Appar- and by the way and then i read oh. this <laughs> I guess this was like a joke or something, but apparently Jefferson Airplane was recording next door and they came by to get the children's autographs. Ew. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, weird. what? How many drugs <laughs> were real? Jefferson Airplane I on know, at the time? Let's like, be real. They were probably like thinking they were tripping balls or something. Go like, ask right. Charlie Brown if he'll sign this paper. <laughs> <laughs> CBS initially wanted an hour of animation, but Melendez talked them down to a half hour as he felt an hour would be way too much. Definitely for them uh, for Can budget. Can you imagine and time them reasons. trying to make it? I know. It? They're like, yeah, uh, it just it wouldn't we wouldn't read as well for an hour. You just uh about <laughs> 20 minutes. That's the perfect amount of time. It uh it started with pencil drawing, which led to inking and painting the drawing into a cell, which was placed on those beautiful painted backgrounds. And speaking of stubborn, so Melendez also was completely unwilling to stray from Schultz's distinctive character designs, which I imagine Sparky really appreciated. So they the the way that they were designed were never intended to be animated. So he had a very difficult time, specifically with Charlie Brown's head. Its round shape made it difficult to depict Charlie turning around. As with most of the characters, his uh, arms were also too tiny to yeah. scratch his head. Uh, so that is why Snoopy, in contrast, was so like boingy, boingy, and, uh, and all around because it was the only character that they were able to actually move around and dance around. Cause like even thinking like we all joke around when we do like the Charlie Brown dancing and the way that they're dancing in the dancing scene. And it's because they couldn't turn around or, and it was difficult for them to be sideways. <laughs> and that makes so much sense. My, I have the opposite problem. My arms are too long to reach my head. I try and I try and they're just too long. <laughs> they just go right past it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <Whoop. laughs> Uh, There are 13,000 drawings in the special with 12 frames per second to create the illusion of movement. But 12 frames per second, that's still quite choppy by today's standards, which I think is pretty clear when you watch it. I think Um, I like it. I think it looks it makes it fun. I don't know. I just I feel like it fits. It gives it a raw feel, which, again, I think speaks towards, again, ties the whole room together. It's the rug. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, because that music that that that. 
amateur voice acting. Like yeah, it the all child works voices. It. Yeah, it kind of gives it a childlike feel. I think. Yep, I like that as totally. a roar feel. It's got the night cats out of us. We're talking about oh, we bringing oh my god Garfield. I guess we can't. No, we can't talk about Garfield on the show. Apparently, no. More like bar. More like Barfield. You're a barf. You're you are you are puke. And that's what I've got to say about it. <laughs> so let's let's get to. I'm just gonna shoulder past that one. Oh, I'm just gonna, oh, you're gonna f- shoulder right into the Vince Guaraldi trio. Vince Guaraldi, uh, not Guaraldi. Guaraldi, Guaraldi. Yes. I don't know how to say it. I've, you know what? Throw I it out there. Giraldi. I don't think I've ever said his last name out loud before. Why would you? I'm pretty sure, but I'm also Giraldi. classically terrible at pronunciation. So, but I'm pretty sure it's Giraldi. Giraldi. Uh, yes, the, the soundtrack, which we, of course, in the original pitch, they wanted some jazz music in there. The it is a mixture of cr- traditional Christmas music and jazz. And all that jazz was done by the Vince Giraldi trio. Giraldi was born and raised in San Francisco, so he's in the mix. Like, they're all over there in the West Coast doing this stuff. And he went on to serve as a cook in the Korean War. He made his first recording in 1953 as a member of the Cal uh, Jader Trio. And shortly after that, he formed his own jazz trio. And what's interesting is that he was trying to capitalize on Bossa Nova, which was the big thing at the time, like Girl from Ipanema is Bossa Nova, mm. and did a Bossa Nova covers album to try and cash in on the genre's popularity. However, it was the one original song that he wrote to fill out the album, which was on the B-side, and that song was called Cast Your Fate to the Wind that ended up winning him a Grammy and really put Putting his name on the map. Yeah, 1962 Grammy for Best Original Jazz Composition. It's a lovely song. I listened to it earlier. Mm-hmm. It is on Spotify. Spotify. Spotify till you die. Spotify <laughs> will not make you cry. No, Spotify. You're scaring us. Which is if the you don't listen to Spotify, you fucking lie. Of how we feel when we listen to this soundtrack. Because now the soundtrack <sighs> is, I, I dare say, almost more famous than the special itself. Probably. And this is coming from a man, uh, Sparky, who hates jazz music and then I why think, did he pitch it well, he so what? really it was Mendelssohn that pitched it uh, okay it was Mendelssohn that pitched it because he wanted to work with Vince Giraldi on the documentary that they were making together he originally heard the song while he was driving he heard the song cast your fate to the wind as he was driving over the Golden Gate Bridge and he he said something in my mind said that's the kind of music that I'm looking for. It's adult-like, but also childlike. It seemed to fit our characters. So he originally yep. brought him in for the documentary, which is how he ended up working on the score for the special. But I think, which they didn't say this, but if I'm picking up what they're putting down, I think it was more so like, well, we already got this guy in the horn, and uh, his music is great. Um, there wasn't, a lot, of, the there wasn't a lot of we got to get the music for the special. to think about things. It sounds like yeah, they kind of had to jump but on shit like old, a grenade. What did old Sparky like then? What kind of music was he into? He was into early hip hop. There was some mm. original hip hop happening. Yeah, a little, little bit. Little, 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 little friends. Little yeah. friends. Yeah, that's yeah. why Snoopy was named after Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> that's not also, true. Also, I will None throw out true. there that. Um, uh, again, a little note of serendipity here in this story. When he heard that song over the bridge, 
He the next day calls the San Francisco Chronicles jazz critic Ralph J. Gleason and asked him, do you have any idea in the world who Vince Giraldi is? And Gleason responded with, yes, as a matter of fact, I'm having lunch with him tomorrow and fucking set up a meeting between them, which I think is like just another amazing one of those like everything falling into place stories. Uh, So not a Charlie Brown moment. Yeah. Unfortunately, not a Charlie Brown moment. Everything just worked out. But this was with Mendelssohn, though. So I think that's why. It really yeah, had nothing to why. do with Sparky. Right. And I think if that Schultz had called him up and yes. was like, Do you know who Vince Roddy is? He'd be like, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. fucking find oh, you and kill you. Loser. Oh, go draw your squiggles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's what he would say to him. Um, so uh, the drummer's name was Jerry Grinelli, and he has some lovely quotes about the making of it. He said, We went in and did it in three hours. That's just the way jazz records were recorded. I think we even went to work in a club that night. There was a lot of improvisation. This pushed the songs into interesting directions, especially the traditional Christmas ones. Uh, and th- there were also uh, some of the songs were pulled from that documentary, such as Linus and Lucy. Which I love, too, because apparently Mendelssohn said that he got a call. He, had, he just got a phone call from Geraldi. And, and he said, I got to play something for you. And Mendelssohn said, Please don't play it over the phone. He said, I got to play it for you for, before I forget. The song was called Linus and Lucy. And he said, it's probably, I would guess, the first time that jazz was ever put into a cartoon. I could be wrong, but it was certainly the first time it had ever been done on an animated network special. Mm. And he immediately heard it and knew that the way he said, the way they walk along and bounce a little bit, that he captured it in the music the way the quality of kids sounded. And Linus and Lucy, which is the... Which is crazy now that sound is synonymous with Charlie Brown, but it's also called Linus and Lucy, which is kind of fun. What? That's crazy. What? I love this quote from Mendelssohn about the soundtrack. He said, I have always felt that one of the key elements that made that show was the music. It gave it a contemporary sound that appealed to all ages. Although Vince had never scored anything else, and although I was basically a documentary filmmaker at the time, we started to work together on the cues because we both loved jazz and we both played the piano. So he would bring in the material for each scene and we would go over it scene by scene. Most of the time, the music worked perfectly, but there were times we would either not use something or use it somewhere else. We went through this same process on all 16 shows. By the way, 16. Special. Really? 16? Nuts. Absolutely. Although there was always some leftover music, most of the time what he wrote and performed is what went on the air. They also worked that that with the choir, um, St. Paul's Episcopal Church in San Rafael, California, the uh, choir director was a guy named Barry Mania, who was a perfectionist, which clashed with Mendelssohn and Giraldi, who, and I think rightly so, wanted the, quote, kids to sound like kids, and even used a slightly off-key version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So Christmas time is here, which, of course, we sang at the top of the episode. <laughs> Which I also really love. So Lee Mendelssohn, so again, remember, they are on such a short, short amount of time to make this that they were struggling to find a lyricist to write the song to the tune. And the set, it was set to premiere in just a few weeks. So Lee Mendelssohn sat down with an envelope. He said, I'll never forget this at our kitchen table and wrote Christmas time is here in about 10 minutes. So he was listening to the song that uh, Geraldi 
made for it, wrote down, and he said, it was a poem that just came to me. I never changed the words to this day. It's only about a minute long, and Vince got a bunch of little kids together to sing it. So he's the one that wrote down the lyrics to Christmas Time is Here in 10 minutes. Also, very Charlie Brown moment where he hit up a ton of different lyricists to write the song and uh, before that, and they all turned him no, down. Like, which no, is like, busy, can't. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, perfect. But again and again, not to go back to the the actual story, but I mean, it's all about getting turned away from the, uh, every inn. You know what I mean? Yes. Like so, it it all kind of works perfectly for Charlie Brown. Either way, um, the sessions there were three of them would go so late into the night with oh the sessions with the little kids would go so late into the night, which pissed parents off. So it'd be new kids each session to replace the missing ones. They were paid five bucks, Wait, and one the of singing? them remembered going to ice cream after the session. For what? The, for all of the singing or for or just yeah. the for just the Hark the Herald Angel. I think ju- all of the all singing, of it, yeah. three sessions. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, I could I could just imagine it kept this being like different kids. That's funny. I love this dire- choir director too, just being like, "You have to get it right. We'll do it again and again and again." <laughs> like, no, no, we like how sloppy it is. <laughs> beat that child! Can someone beat that child? Uh, but either way, uh, this is uh, the mo- maybe the most Charlie Brown of the whole story is here with just weeks to go. Mendelssohn gets together with Melendez and 10 other animators to watch the first complete cut of the show. Mendelssohn said when it was finished, it was very quiet in the room. Bill and I were concerned that it seemed slow and that perhaps wasn't going to be received very well. Others in the room were less than enthusiastic. However, one animator in the back of the room stood up and said, you guys are nuts. This is going to run for years and years. Still, Mendelssohn and crew thought, quote, we'd ruined Charlie Brown. (laughs) And also CBS hated it. They found it slow, amateurish, and tonally inconsistent. Mendelssohn said CBS executives did not get the voices. They didn't get the music. They didn't get the pacing. And so CBS was like, I guess we'll run it because now we kind of have to. They say that if it wasn't supposed to run literally within the next scheduled for the next week, if that wasn't the case, it probably never would have seen the light of day, which is fucking crazy. I can't believe that because CBS executives are never wrong about anything. I know, They've right? never been wrong. I know. I wrote, of course they did not get it in my, <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> of course And they also did before it. that, and this is an interesting thing, the ad agency sent a person named Neil Reagan to go check out how the progress was going on the special and apparently thought it was like, a disaster as well, Such but a weirdly was like tight lipped about it to the ad agency, which is, again was this little moment of like good graces for just, them to actually I, get the special over. Were people just freaking out because it was just such out of the formulaic version yes. of things? Because yes, yeah. everybody is treating this like this living nightmare is happening in front of them, and it's like, well, if you think it's about not it, though, that bad. I but mean, they're in, they're shitting on. The people, the ad advertising agencies that give them money that they run on. There's religion involved, which they did not want to fuck with. And the fact that there's jazz music in a kid's show. Jazz music with this kid's thing. It's really, it is, even for their standards in the mid-60s, it's slow paced. Yeah. And again, I think that slow pace is what adds like this warmth to it that again makes us, keeps us coming back to it over and over again. But they didn't know that at the time. I know. Growing up in the Vine generation i still found it captivating i loved it (laughs) see but that's the thing because also in remembering if you think about like it's the late 50s in a time when you know things were becoming a little bit more 
fake, like the aluminum trees, like showing, and, and you know, it's the, the the beginning of like credit cards and Plastics. living outside of your means and, and all that kind of stuff of like, no, but the, we're in the throes of people spending money that they don't have. You can't, you can't tell them not to. Yeah, and how would we have Plastic Bottle Island in the middle of the ocean without that time? Hmm? Yes, that's yeah. where the whales get to beach themselves, which technically <laughs> is a vacation for them. Yeah, exactly. It is. Uh, yeah, that was the advent of the plastic pet, yeah. you know, with the tagline, throw your dog against the wall. It's not real. It doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. And all the dogs are getting thrown against the wall. It was. Uh, they were trying to come up. They were like, can we make a plastic woman for a housewife? Like they were trying to develop the technology. <laughs> and they did. To do that. Now they have. It's great. Well, how do we get rid of all these murderous rages? <laughs> <laughs> but either way, this little special that could debuts on December 9th, 1965. Half the country tunes in to watch. The other half was watching Bonanza, but that's okay. We'll give them a pass. Over 15 million people tuned into this thing. Mendelssohn said, the next morning, I walked into my neighborhood coffee shop and everyone was congratulating me. That's when I knew we might have something. It was awarded with a Peabody Award, which is a huge deal, as well as an Emmy for Outstanding Children's Program. I love seeing the guys in their suits receiving their award and just clearly so pleased this trio, this partnership that is cemented and lasting for 38 years between Schultz, Mendelssohn, and Melendez. Uh, obviously, so many more specials came out after that. Such a massive hit. And they, you know, and I just love to see it because it wasn't even Charlie Browned by the viewers. Like, everybody was just like, this is fantastic immediately out of the gate. It wasn't like a cult following kind of thing. No. Uh, do you have anything else? I have one final quote and that's it. No, it's just that uh, it is, it's so beautiful. And the fact that with Apple Plus and what they've done to it this year, the fact that you cannot get it anywhere else except on Apple Plus, it's like, do you have you watched Charlie Brown Christmas? Have you? That's the the opposite of what it's supposed to um, bring out in people. But again, I, I think that I'm watching it this year in a very different perspective than I have in years before. Right? And I do feel in the same way that I feel like I'm crying through a lot of movies that I haven't cried through holiday-wise in a very long Scrooged. time. Cry- I cried at the end. Cried. I cried. <laughs> so it's just going to be one of those years. Watch it. Watch it alone. Watch it with family. Cry. Let's get the tears out. because I can't help it. You don't even have to tell me to cry. I can't stop. No, but please hold it and share with us the Michael John quote. It's a short little quote, just, and I completely agree with it, though. That show, in its plot, characters, and perhaps above all, in its music, captures an authentic bittersweetness, the melancholy of this time of year, like no other work of art I know. Agreed. I think it is just timeless, absolutely beautiful, and it actually forces you to tap into what this shit is really about outside of the fucking running out to the mall and screaming at your fucking family and, you know, Aunt Lucifer's getting into the eggnog again. <laughs> oh my uh, God. I don't know why Sick. anyone would name yeah. her Lucy. Yeah, I don't know why they named her Lucifer. Yeah, well, everyone but, um, calls her Lucy. It's cool. I want yeah. Bring her over to yeah, our house Li- to hang out. Aunt Lulu. Oh, yeah, I sent her over to you guys. She's Aunt coughing Aunt all Lulu. over the place. She's coughing <laughs> oh, into no. her hands and rubbing everybody's faces and stuff. She's a blast. There's a lot to unpack in that. <laughs> Aunt <laughs> Aunt Lulu. Oh, uh, yeah, she's the best. But either way, uh, yeah, I think it really, for 20 minutes every single year, I sit down. And I remember what this shit's about. And um, I think it's beautiful that that can happen.
and for people on their TV, you don't even need to go to a church for it. You can just sit down and just take all of that in. And it's not just, you know, the the biblical stuff in there. Obviously, it's not even close to just that. I think every single scene in that special speaks towards something meaningful when it comes to Christmas and when it comes to the fucking human spirit. I mean, I also think about how this time, not to get too dark, but how, you know, it's around this time that the most people take their own lives. And there's a lot of just hard rough feelings going on and just um, remember to be good to each other be, yeah just, just be good be, to each other be good be a just good like person. sparky christ did yeah just like sparky christ oh my god why haven't we been calling him. him sparky christ this entire only his time mistress is allowed to call him that uh, <laughs> and we, we know that yeah and only while he's completely just slamming so hard away at her she's dressed in a woodstock costume oh <laughs> we love you guys. I hope you have a. Oh no, we're not. That's how we're I'll be it. That's how. Yes, this yeah, is how we're ending. We're as Sparky Christ rails on oh, his, yeah, his little are. Woodstock mistress. <laughs> that is where we end it. Happy fucking holidays. Uh, <laughs> my name is Jackie Zaprowski. You can follow me on Instagram at Jack That Worm. Oh, I needed that. Uh, I'm Natalie G. Follow me at the Natty Jean, and you can follow us at page 7 LPN. And I am Holden McNeely. You can follow me by just catching me in a dark alleyway and just walking slowly <laughs> behind it. me as I go home. No, he please loves don't it. encourage that. It's a bit of a Bella, <laughs> he is. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Check me out on that. Check out Patreon, patreon.com forward slash page 7 podcast. Honestly, happy holidays to everybody. We love you. We'll get through this together. Yes. And uh, take, or it's 2021 when you're listening to this and you, you're like, what the fuck are they even talking about? Oh, are you free? Having a great- I'm you fine. Have been fine. <laughs> walking around. What is it like uh, in the future? <laughs> what does the world smell like? All right. Have a good one, everybody. Bye, and take care. Bye. <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses. Plus, updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.